Are we ready? I heard you laugh. You don't think I can do it. (laughs) The problem is I've been spoiled. I'm not spoiled like that a lot of places I go. So I've let you spoil me, but no one complain at the end tonight, okay? Let's open the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just in case anyone hasn't figured it out, or you're new, or haven't been here before, we're studying the judgment seat of Christ. A little bit. There's no way we can cover it all. But one day the Lord's going to cover it all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. The word of the Lord says, therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we come into the most holy presence, thy person, and we do pray in the name of the Lord Jesus and and seek your help. As we look into this book, we thank you for it, this wonderful book that tells us of your Son, that tells us of salvation, that tells us of your plan for our lives. And we thank you for giving it to us. We thank you that it is inspired and trustworthy, a faithful saying, and worthy to be accepted by all. And we pray that you will do your work in our hearts tonight that your presence and your power will be felt in our lives, and that you will lead us in the pathway of your will. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We spoke uh, Monday night in an introductory way about the judgment seat of Christ, and we, I hope we distinguished it, uh, and I'm planning not to go over that again. We distinguished between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne and the concept of being judged for sin, which is what awaits every unbeliever after this life, and and being judged for service, not for sin, which is what awaits the believer after this life. For we must all, and when he says we, he's speaking about believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. No unbeliever will appear there. But every believer will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We talked about the background and the meaning of the judgment seats. A lot of kings and rulers have had judgment seats and tribunals. And right now it seems all of America is concerned about the appointment of a judge to the Supreme Court. But we don't know anything about the real Supreme Court and the presiding judge whom no one appoints. It's not a political appointment. But one day we will all see him face to face. We talked about that and we talked about the time of the judgment seat. 
that's going to be after this life. And that has a tremendous meaning if we stop and think about it. It means no more opportunities. No more chances. No more time for service. Time for us, when we stand before the Lord at the judgment seat, will be over. You only go around once. Now, if you were interested in that book, only one time around, there are no more of them out there. It can be ordered. There are a few other books that are out there. My heart, my life, my all, love's response to Christ. It's about Christian service and commitment. It's an excellent book. But you'll have to move fast because, I don't know if I should tell you this, I took this copy off the table and there are no more on the table. So I already have it. But someone will get this one after the meeting. We want to think now about the place of the judgment seat. The place of the judgment seat, which goes along with the time. And for that, we're going to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's the place. The time is in the future. The time is after this life. And the place is in heaven, in the Father's house, in that place that the Lord Jesus has gone to prepare for us. In my Father's house, it says, are many mansions. A more correct translation would be, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. The concept is more of a An oriental palace, a huge palace in which there are many rooms and dwelling places. It's not like suburban Danville with each one. And I wonder sometimes if all of us are really going to be happy in heaven living in someone else's house. Some people try to make their heaven on earth. But the father has a house prepared and a place in his house, dwelling place in his house for each of us. But in that place in heaven... After this life, the first thing that is going to take place, according to the scripture, is there's going to be a time of review of our service. And the important thing to remember here, just as we spoke about, as far as time goes, in that place, no one is going to be able to say, oops, let me go back to earth and fix it. I just remembered It's too late, and you're too far away to just remember. You know how they do in these movies about space and space travel, and they show the rocket or whatever it is takes off, and they show the earth there receding away, and you're out in the blackness of space, and finally the earth is just a little dot. Well, that's nothing compared to what it's going to be like. You're going to be a long way from earth. We're going to be a long way from this life. 
in that place in the Father's house. Of course, in heaven, the, the wonderful thing about being in that place, and there are many wonderful things about it, we're going to be with Him, to be with Christ, which is far better. It's going to be great. We cannot imagine what it's going to be like to be there. And so while it encourages us, let it also remind us that in that place, everyone is going to be serving the Lord. Everyone. It won't be anything unusual. Down here on this earth, it's unusual, even among evangelicals, to find someone who's giving their life in devoted service to Christ, who thinks as they go about their daily tasks, whatever they might be, I'm doing this for the Lord. It's part of my testimony. I'm serving Christ. A person with a song in their heart and and the testimony of the Lord Jesus on their lips. That's unusual. That's the extraordinary down here. In heaven, everyone will be doing it. In that place, there will be no place for self-serving. In that place, everyone will serve the Lord with one mind. And so your opportunity and my opportunity to distinguish ourselves, and not in the sense of self-gain and self-aggrandizement, but in the sense of showing the Lord our devotion and our love and our appreciation for Him, our only opportunity is now in this place, in this place where you live and where you work and where you spend your time on a daily basis. And when I say you, I'm including myself, so don't worry about that. That's the place to serve the Lord, and to show Him that these things we sing about Him are really true. How can I do less than give Him my best and live for Him forever after all He's done for me? So easy to sing it. And that's why A.W. Tozer said, Christians tell more lies when they sing hymns than any other people at any other time. And so let's mean what we sing. Those are wonderful words we sing. But be careful not to tell God lies in song. That's the place. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, it says, The Lord, when he descends from heaven with a shout, the trump of God, the voice of the archangel, and he calls us up to be with him, we're going to meet him in the air, in the clouds, in the air, and we're going to go to be with him. So shall we be ever With the Lord. And there with the Lord in that place. Will take place. The judgment seat of Christ. In Revelation chapter 4. You come to the end of those two chapters. 2 and 3. Where he addresses himself to each of the seven churches. Seven literal historical churches. But also seven typical churches. While literal and historical. They also present to us elements that are present in different churches, in different places, in every church, in every true church of believers on this world. And what does the Lord say? And he comes to the end of his review of those seven churches. Well, as he goes along, he says to them, I know your works. Every letter he begins that way. I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. But when he comes to the end of it, he says in chapter 4 and verse 1, And I heard a voice in heaven that said, 
come up here. And from that point on, the church is no longer seen on earth in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not going to, my purpose is not to go into that and dissect the book of Revelation. But I just want you to remember this. That's the place we're going to be. And we're going to be in that wonderful place, that heavenly place, that dwelling place and prepared place by our heavenly Father and by the Lord Jesus for us is the place where, first of all, our service to him is going to be reviewed. And if you want to be happy about your service when you get to that place, you have to be careful about how you're living in this place. Only one life will soon be passed. What? You haven't learned it yet? Only one life will soon be passed. And there, when we reach that place, we're going to find out and we're going to see what has been done for Christ. Which brings me to our next point, which is the presiding judge at the judgment seat. And of course, we might say in the parlance of 21st century man, that's a no-brainer. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And so he is the presiding judge. But let's think about what that means for a few moments. John chapter 5 and verse 22, we have God's word on it. John chapter 5 and verse 22, he says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. It's made very clear there by our Lord Jesus that all judgment, whether it be the great white throne, whether it be, and there are different judgments in the, in the scriptures, the judgments of the nations at the beginning of the time of the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment, just to mention a few of them, all judgment has been committed unto the Son. He'll sit on every one of those thrones He will preside those judgments. It will be the judgment of God. In Romans chapter 14, it's called the judgment seat of God. But it's all one and the same because God the Son and God the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son. So the Lord Jesus himself is going to be the judge there. And it's only fair. It's only right. Because he came to this earth. He taught the disciples, the apostles. He gave his word to them to be given out. And he told them in Matthew chapter 28. In verse 20. Reading from verse 19. He said, go ye therefore into, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. He didn't say teaching them all things. He said teaching them to observe all things. And the Lord Jesus is very concerned about whether or not this command so clearly given has been obeyed. Teaching them 
to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. It's only right and fair that Christ should review his church, that he should review his people, that he should see if those who have taught have taught to observe all things that he commanded us. And if those who have been taught have observed all the things that he commanded us. And here is a tremendous responsibility that has fallen in great neglect in our times. When people like to teach what people like to hear. Instead of what God said. When the message is tailored to the felt or perceived needs of the group. Instead of giving them what God has said. Teaching them to observe all things. A.W. Tozer said the problem with our generation is people want to be happy and God wants us to be holy. So preachers begin to tell people how to be happy instead of how to be holy. But one day those men are going to stand before God who said, Be ye holy for I am holy. And they are going to answer for what they taught people and for what they didn't teach them. That'll give pause to anyone. We're going to stand before the Lord. The Father has committed all judgment unto the Son. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8, Let's read from verse 7. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Pay careful attention to the next words. And not to me only, but unto all them also. That love his appearing. Later on we're going to talk about the crowns. But let's remember this. Paul looked forward to that meeting. With the Lord. The righteous judge. And he's speaking here. About the judgment seat of Christ. There's a laid up for me. A crown of righteousness. Who laid it up? The Lord. Who's going to give it to me? The Lord. And he's going to give it to all of those that love his appearing. I have a little poem in the back of my Bible written by uh, Harry Ironside that goes like this. When I am dying, how glad I shall be that the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee. I shall not regret one thing that I gave, money or time, one sinner to save. I shall not mind that the way has been rough, that thy blessed feet led the way for me is enough. When I am dying... How glad I shall be that the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee. How do you show the Lord that you love his appearing? Is it the same thing to love prophecy conferences? To be a prophecy enthusiast as it is to love the Lord's appearing? It's possible to have an intellectual curiosity about future events in the same way that a person might go over into Danville and, and that, uh, I don't know what that street is, Adel, where the psychic, the Danville psychic has his big... Okay. 
That's this boulevard out here. Don't anyone make a mistake driving along and go to the wrong place. People have a morbid curiosity about the future. And sometimes when they begin to read the scriptures, and it's easy to fall into this. People, you can have an intellectual interest. It can become your hobby. And you will attend any prophecy conference they give anywhere in the country. You drive or fly any number of miles to be there and to hear the latest speaker with the latest book about the future events. And people love to do this. There are people who do this kind of thing. So what are we saying? Are we saying it's wrong to study prophecy? You ought to know me better than that. But the important thing is how it affects your life, not how much of it you got stored up here. That's the important thing. And it is very difficult looking at the evangelical world today to believe that people really think they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That, that we're, are we living, all of us, like we believe at any moment the heavens could open, Christ could come in the air, call us to be up with Him, and all of this that we're so tangled up in down here will be gone forever. All opportunities gone. All chances to serve Him gone. And everything left behind. All treasure laid up on earth. Gone forever. We're going to see Him. We're going to stand in His blessed presence and see His wonderful, blessed face. And we're never going to come back to live like we have lived down here. If I really believed that, it would change the way I live. It's like the people who say they believe in God, but their life shows that they are practicing agnostics or atheists. There's nothing in their day-to-day life that shows that God has any place in their life at all. And some of us, in that sense, may not fit into the category of Unto all them also that love his appearing. If I loved his appearing and believed that he was really going to come tomorrow, I would think about the resources I've hoarded for myself that I could have given to him. The old brother said, do your giving while you're living, then you're knowing where it's going. And we try to hang on to it and squeeze that last interest payment out of it. And have that bank account as bloated as possible. And then when we die, we'll leave it in our will. And some people will leave it in their will to children who will be ruined by it. Unbelieving children. Worldly, carnal as goats. They won't give it to God, not in this life. And the old brother was right. Do your giving while you're living. Because the moment you die, it's not yours. It's not yours. The judgment seat of Christ, he says here. That we will receive, each one will receive the things done in the body. As soon as you leave your body, that's it. You get no credit after that. We're going to be with him. We're going to see him. Do we really believe that he's coming, that his appearing is near? Suppose we knew he was coming tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock.
Now, you know, don't, I, well, I hope all of you know me by now. You should know me well enough to know I'm not a date setter. But we should live. And the Lord intended for us to live with this perpetual tension. It is a tension in which he meant for us to live. The perpetual tension of knowing that at any moment he could appear. It should affect our every decision, all of our priorities, all of our relationships and associations. It should affect everything about us. The knowledge and the belief that at any moment the heavens could open and Christ could appear. And you could be walking down Main Street one day and put your left foot down on the sidewalk and your right foot up in heaven. That quick, you'll be gone. (laughs) Do you love His appearing? You long for His appearing? Oh, Lord, I want you to come, but let me live until I get married. Oh, Lord, even so come, Lord Jesus, but let me have my first baby. Oh, Lord, please come, but let me finish this project I'm working on and get my grade for it. Oh, Lord, you know that at the end of the trimester is when I'm going to receive my interest payment on this account. Let me fulfill my dream. Let me have what I want. Or could you say, without any qualification to it, like the dear Apostle John says at the end of the book of Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus. Not but or when or anything. To say as he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, Thy kingdom come. It has come in our hearts. Well, that's not the final meaning of that prayer. And for the Lord's kingdom to come on this earth, first the Lord has to come and take us up to be with Him in heaven. He has to take us to the judgment seat of Christ. He has to sort out all the tangled mess. He has to reward all the faithful service and encourage and recompense all of those who have loved His appearing and lived for Him. He has to judge the earth and prepare it for His coming. And He will. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, all these things are included. And the Lord says, lo, I come quickly. And what do we say? Oh, not yet, Lord. I want you to come, but not yet. Whatever it is, and I'm sure there must be at least one person, and probably more here tonight, that has said or may even at this very moment be saying, come, Lord, but... Whatever that but is, is a dangerous thing. It may be an idol. Now we understand the prayer of a mother or a father who's praying, Oh Lord, please save my child. Please save my son before you come. We understand that prayer, don't we? And if we understand it, how much more does the Lord understand it? But to be able to say, even so, even so, Lord, even if it's today, come, come, let it not be for lack of invitation from me. Come, Lord. I don't see the evangelical churches today saying, come, Lord Jesus. All them that love his appearing, because we're going to be with him when the 
When the Lord takes us up, we're going to be forever with him and we're going to see his face. And he's going to review our lives and our service for him as we spoke about the other day. Romans 14 and verse 10. Let's come back to it. Romans 14 and verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, for it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's the judge at the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. At the judgment seat of Christ is going to be accounting time. And we'll talk more about that later. But I want you to remember this. It's the judgment seat of Christ. It's not the judgment seat of the church. It's not the judgment seat of people in the church. It's not the judgment seat of any man. It's not the judgment seat of the government. It's not the judgment seat of public opinion. It's not how history will remember you. We hear that a lot. How will history remember him? I could care less. What will God say? What will Christ say? Just like we do sometimes when a person's life is summed up in a few words, a verse or a piece of poetry or something on that tombstone. And I saw one time in, the, in a little town in North Carolina, a tombstone of a man that had only this on it, the symbol of Chevrolet. Someone asked, why is it that people live for the world, the flesh, and the devil, and then when they die, they want a Bible verse put on their tombstone? I try to sum up in some kind way. But what will the Lord say? What will he say when he sums up our life? What will he say when he sums up your life? The judgment seat of Christ. There is a hymn. I don't think you know it. Some of us do, but probably not everyone. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face. What will it be when with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me? Face to face I shall behold him far beyond the starry sky. Face to face in all his glory I shall see him by and by. Only faintly now I see him with the darkened veil between, but a blessed day is coming when his glory shall be seen. Face to face with Christ, my Savior. That's what the judgment seat is going to be like. You're not going to see him like uh, you see someone when you're in a stadium or a concert hall and you're sitting a little ways back and you see the person, but you're not close enough to have a conversation with him. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be your face in front of his face. 
Revelation tells us, they shall see his face. It means up close and personal. And of course, that's where we want to be. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Heaven is my home, away beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's our home. But what will it be like? I want you to think about that. What will it be like to see him face to face and face to face to have him review your life? Revelation 1.14 says his eyes are as flames of fire. Piercing and burning eyes as flames of fire. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 as we spoke of earlier. Time and time again the Lord says, I know thy works to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know thy works to the church at Smyrna. I know thy works to the church at Pergamos. I know thy works to the church at Thyatira. I know thy works. And so on till he comes right to the end. All seven churches, the Lord says, I know thy works. And that's a warning to us. That when the Lord speaks with us. When the Lord reviews our life and our service, we are going to be face to face with someone who knows our works. It's not what we dreamed about doing. Not what we planned to do. But what we did. That which was done in the body. I know thy works. In Hebrews chapter 11, when the Lord reviews there what many people call, I don't like to call it that, the hall of fame, the heroes of the faith, the hall of fame. I don't like to call it that for the simple reason that it gives people the museum mentality. Like you might go to a wax museum and see famous inventors or the the past presidents or something like that. Uh, You might go to a museum and see how life was in the 20s. Uh, see the gas light era and then the electric era and and you go through and you see the different uh, sets there and they show how people lived, what the appliances were like in their homes and that sort of thing. It's very informative, but no one has any intention of going back and living like people lived in 1920. And sometimes we read Hebrews 11 and we come out of it that way with kind of the mentality of someone who went to a museum. A lot of nice and interesting and informative things, but we have no intention of living like those people we saw there. And that's exactly why we have been given Hebrews 11. That we might live the lives of faith that those people lived. That we might choose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. For example. And so Hebrews 11 tells us, And God knew the lies of these people. And he speaks well of those who trusted in him. And that day is coming when not just these exemplary lies, but the life of every person who has trusted in Christ and their service will be reviewed by the one who knows what our spiritual gifts are. By the one who knows what our resources were. By the one who knows what all the different circumstances, some of which perhaps limiting or extenuating. The Lord knows all of those things. The one who knows what our potential was. And who can compare what we did for him, how we served him, with what we could have done for him. 
And the one who will take all acts and works of service, all deeds of service to him, and review them according to his word. I remember working for my father, who was a, a glass uh, contractor, and he would, uh, they would install uh, glass in office buildings and homes sometimes. And I remember going with him one time when I was learning to drive, and uh, I had my driver's permit, and so I would drive him around everywhere, and, that's, and, and I was right by his side. And I remember going onto a job site with him more than one time and seeing a man walk into that job site, that building that was being built with one of these under his arm. The man was called the architect. Oh, how the plumbers and the electricians and the carpenters and the glass installers trembled when the architect came in. And the architect came in and he'd open it up and he'd begin to look. So why are these lights here? Who, who installed this? One, two, three, four, five, six. Look, right here on the plan it says there's supposed to be eight. Here it is, right here. And he would show it to them. He called the electrician over. He called whoever it was who had done whatever they'd done. He'd say to my father, why did they put this door, the entrance door to the building, why did they hang it so it opens to the right? It's supposed to open to the left. Why are the closers visible on the outside of the door? They're supposed to be under the floor. Look, it says it right here. Take that out. Take it out. Take all of this ceiling out. Take everything out and put it in according to plan. Oh, but couldn't you get by with six? I mean, it's already installed. Take it out. He's the architect. And brother, when the architect speaks, it's worse than E.F. Hutton. Everybody listens. And I've seen them do it. I've seen them take down doors. I've seen them knock out walls. I've seen them take out lights. I've seen electricians have to rewire buildings because they didn't do what the architect said. Who's the architect? And you know what? You have one of these. You have one of these. It's not a secret plan. The poor man who installed these, maybe he never even saw a blueprint. And some of them, I'm sure, didn't know what a blueprint was. They wouldn't have known it if one had fallen out of the ceiling and hit them on the head. They'd never seen one. But somebody was responsible for that. You see, you and I have a blueprint. And the one who inspired and wrote this blueprint is the one who's going to judge us at the judgment seat of Christ. Here's the standard. We'll come to that later on. But we're going to be with him. We're going to meet him face-to-face, the architect and the one who gave us this book to guide our lives, every area of our lives, that same one is going to review our lives and our service at the judgment seat of Christ. David and his scribes in the Old Testament gave honor to his valiant men and even not only the valiant men of David, but they even mentioned those who worked in the vineyards Those who worked in the wine cellars and the oil cellars, the people who kept the olive oil, the people who who kept the wine that was used in the the king's palace and in the drink offerings that were poured out, uh, the libations given in the temple, people who were never seen by the public. But their names are recorded in the book of Chronicles. 
to remind us that the one that we're going to see at the judgment seat of Christ knows what every one's service has been. And brother, sister, the Lord might have called you to serve him in some place, in some back room, in some ministry, in some place where you haven't been seen. The important thing is not to have visibility. The important thing is to be doing what the Lord has called you to do. The poet said, little things I had forgotten, he will show me, were for him. He doesn't forget the little things. He knows about the wine cellars. He knows about the those cellars, those underground places where people work. Those unseen laborers for him. Praying, serving, cleaning. So many things that are being done that a lot of people never think about. Don't be discouraged if you're doing those things. Because one day you're going to meet face to face with the one that the scripture tells us. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. God is not a forgetter. In the smallest deed of service, even a cup of water given in his name, will not go unrewarded. This is the faithful judge who's going to judge at the judgment seat of Christ. But the question is, what are we going to have to give him? What will we have to give him in exchange for the life he's given us? What will we present to him and what will be presented to him on that day when we stand before him? In exchange for however many years of life he gave you? In exchange for the Holy Spirit who dwelled in you and made your body his temple? In exchange for the word of God which the Holy Spirit inspired and gave to us and illuminated us and enabled us to understand it? In exchange for a church where you could be taught and have fellowship and be strengthened? In exchange for all of the things that God has given you, what would you give him? What will there be? If I'm going to see Christ face to face, I want to think now about what I'm doing for Christ. Not for me. For Christ. And that brings us to the final thing we want to consider tonight. And it's something that we've already considered. So we're just going to spend a moment on it. That is the people who will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. The people. We all, he says. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's a term that includes everyone. But notice what he says immediately after that. He says that everyone may receive the things done in his body. He goes from the all-inclusive to the individual. We must all stand before the judgments. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone... Each one, that's the idea. Every one, but one at a time. Each one may receive the things done in his body. We all, every one, every single one. There are some people that will not be at the judgment seat of Christ, even though they have been in church. 
Because when he says we all, it refers to believers. Is there someone here tonight who can't say with absolute confidence that you know for sure that if you were to die today, you would go to be with the Lord? I don't mean I hope so, I think so, I'm pretty sure. Absolutely, 100% sure, nothing else will do. Because everyone else who's not in the we all of true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone else, I don't care if your mother's a believer. I don't care if your father's a believer. I don't care if your brother's a believer. It doesn't matter how many meetings you've been to. I don't care how many Bible classes or if you were in the youth group or what kind of service you did in the church. You must be a born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be included in this we all. And all of those who are not included in this we all are going to be included in the other all. The other all. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The other judgment. So we think about the serious tone in which these words are given to us as believers. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And it is my hope to persuade you to live for God and not to waste your life. Because it is a serious thing to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. To have remorse, but no opportunity to repair it. And not without meaning, the scripture tells us that the Lord will wipe away all tears. If any man's work shall be burned, 1 Corinthians says, he shall suffer loss. It doesn't say he shall enjoy loss. It says he shall suffer loss. I hope to persuade you as much as I can, humanly speaking. And may the Holy Spirit, may our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to do that work in our hearts. To persuade us to live for Christ. This life is our only opportunity to live for him. And we are going to be judged. We are the people. No one is going to escape. No one is going to postpone it. You're not going to have a lawyer. You're not going to stand there with your friends. It's not going to be your group. It's going to be you individually, personally, before the Lord. And no one who's listening and no one who's reading the Bible is going to be able to say, Oh Lord, I didn't know. I didn't know. You all know that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He says, we must. The certainty of it. And so if we must stand there and be judged by him, then we must serve him while we live. We must live for him. We must deny ungodliness. We must deny worldliness and live for him. The scripture teaches us when we're given those wonderful words in Titus that speak to us about the blessed hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus.
The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It's not talking about how you're going to live in heaven. In heaven, everyone will live soberly, righteously, and godly. Our calling is to live that way now. Our only opportunity is to live that way now. And if we don't, we throw it away. For what? For what? For the approval and the applause of friends? For comfort in this world that's going to be burned up? For the pleasure of people that will have no place in heaven? For what? And if the Lord were to have to ask us in that day, why didn't you? What would we say to him? We are the people who most certainly will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. May each of us then make this resolution. I am going to live. God helping me. I am going to live and I am going to dispose of my resources and use my life, my powers, the things that I have in my control. I am going to use all of that and live for the glory of the Lord Jesus so that when I stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, he will say to me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. We give thanks, Heavenly Father, for this time that we've had together in the Word of God. And we do pray that it would be a blessing and an encouragement and a spur to our consciences as well. We do pray that the Holy Spirit will use this Word in our lives. Help us to live as people who are soon to see you face to face, Lord Jesus. We thank you for coming to die for us on the cross. We thank you for rising victorious from the tomb. We thank you that you're seated at the right hand of the majesty on high and that we're soon to see you. But as the hymn writer said, face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face, what will it be? Help us each to go our way tonight thinking about the answer to that question. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.